This is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here with us in the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Vigo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocal is Jim Brockmeyer, and I completely punted that one. So many reasons. All of you are the best. So many reasons. One of which is last time I was confessing that I had a hole in my game when it came to Martin Scorsese. So I said, I'm trying to find American Boy, this documentary, 1978, and boom, tweets came flooding to Cinephile ESPN, to Adman ESPN. People let me know that it's on YouTube. So I... Felt odd having to watch a film on YouTube, but for Marty, it's great. And this is a 30-year-old film that was just un- unearthed by me on YouTube. I'll give my review later on in Scorsese stories, but I just want to thank everybody who right away was like, hey, I'll hook you up. Here it is. One of many other reasons you guys are the best is we do something here with the V Foundation, of course, raising funds for cancer research. And Cinephile, we did this last year. Unfortunately, the winner... Had dental surgery, so we, we couldn't actually end up hooking up, which is a real shame because they were very generous. Uh, but we did it again, and I want to thank all those that bid on the package. And the winner, Dan Stanzik, tells me, how much money did this person donate? I believe it was $6,400 was the winning bid. <laughs> that is unbelievable. So here's what they won. You get to sit in on a Cinephile podcast taping. So you'll be right next to me or right next to Dan as we do this. Uh, and then walk the red carpet at the Tribeca Film Festival and then see one of the ESPN films like Mike and the Mad Dog. And then the post party. There's one thing you need to know about Dan Stanzik. He's Irish, okay? Listen, he he can get after, right? I always point to the fact he's Slovak, but it's actually a quarter Slovak. He's more Irish than anything. Yeah, quarter Polish, quarter Slovak, half Irish. More than anything, he's Irish. So he can hold his liquor and he's single at last check. So he's the guy you want to party with the post party. Podcast taping. Hey, get to hang with me. The action movie's great. And then Danny will take it. Could go till 4 a.m. Uh, I just want to thank the person, because that is a ton of money. Seriously, we really appreciate that and appreciate all those that donated. Infused with honesty and authenticity, Michael Showalter's Crowd Pleaser is an instantly winning heart stealer and a superbly well-timed story of culture class that resolves into a lovely tale of mutual understanding and acceptance. That's from Thomas Lafley of New York Magazine slash Vulture. The Big Sick is one of the films that I'll be reviewing today, along with Baby Driver, Despicable Me 3, and Cars 3. Also... Great guest list coming up as Andy Sandberg and Richard Sandemir are going to join us. Richard has a new book, Proud of the Yankees, all but the making of the iconic film starring Gary Cooper, which was about Lou Gehrig. And, of course, Andy's got Tour de Pharmacy, which looks to be hysterical. I cannot wait to ask him about that. And, of course, you all know how much I loved Pop Star. We can get into some other things there. Also, thanks to everybody who listened last time. People really seem to enjoy our top ten list. Maybe not enjoy our list, but they enjoyed the topic. They can tell us how wrong we were. Top ten of the century, which was inspired by the New York Times. Dan was a little skittish about his list, but clearly the audience likes his list more than mine. Wedding Crashers, Gone Baby Gone, probably the most controversial choices you had, but people no, get it. out of here. Gone Baby Gone was a great choice. People <laughs> are still tweeting in how awesome it is and how you have to watch it again. And I do have to point out my number one film was Inception. Yeah. 
And one of our listeners, you keep mentioning how great they are, sent me a few gifts. Oh. I'll, I will leave it at that. But a, a listener by the name of Jason Buford, thank you so much for the gifts. Really appreciated them. Inception number one movie Wait, hey, of the 21st you century. You're going to give some more details. What well, I don't know how many you? details I can give because I think we have rules here on the amount of okay, the no, things no, that you're allowed to accept and not to accept. I think okay. we're okay, right. but he is a very generous listener, loyal listener, big fan. Jason Buford, thank you again. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, my brother, Zeeshan, who listens all the time, you can follow him on Twitter, Z-E-E-S-H-A-N-V. He's not quite a prolific tweeter, but he is out there, and of course he's my brother and he's the best, and he listens to every podcast, and he likes Dan... Not only do he like Dan's list more than mine, I think he just likes Dan more than me because he... Can you blame him? Well, he finds the Cone Brothers overrated, so he loves you for saying that. they are. But your brother Jim liked my list more than yours. That's uh, may, Probably. Okay. I mean... Well, at least yeah. that'll make it fair. So That's I said fair. to my brother, give me your ten. So he has honorable mentions. He put five, which I told him is wrong. He's only supposed to have three. But I'll read his three. Captain America Civil War, X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men 2. We got it. The, the, the comic book movies, a little, <laughs> little much there, but okay. I omitted the other two because you only had three, but he also had Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Love the Lord of the Rings series, but that last one, the third one, that one best picture, yes. was about an hour too long. I thought the movie ended four separate times, and it just kept going. <laughs> it was like a Lifetime Achievement Award when it finally won best picture. Number 10, and I felt bad about this with our original list. You know, I had about 20 to 25. I'm sure Dan did the same thing. I really wanted to squeeze a Tarantino film in. I didn't. My brother loves QT. Number 10, Inglorious Bastards. Number 9 is Star Trek Into Darkness. Number 8 is Rough the Avengers. <laughs> Number 8 is The Avengers. I like The Avengers, but again, the, the com- do your brother like comic books growing up? Yeah, can you tell? Number 7, The Hangover, which is a great choice. Sure. That, that I'd said would have been my... Uh, Big budget, gross-out comedy. Yours, uh, of course, was Wedding Crashers. Number six, Spider-Man 2. Again, with a comic book here. S- Spider-Man was my favorite cartoon growing up. But, right. I mean, the films leave a little to be desired. Number five says best one of this list, potentially. The Dark Knight, which I'd said I wanted to be on my list. Dan had also sure. mentioned it. Number four, The Departed. Outstanding. Love it. Number three, Marty. Borat. Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Hilarious, but shouldn't be anywhere near the top ten. <laughs> Kazakhstan is the best. Number two, Inception, which was Dan's number now one. Now we're talking. And number one, the best film of the century, according to my brother, Spider-Man. Okay. We, we got to redo this list. We got to <laughs> we gotta remove comic books as a, a genre. I'm so happy my buddy Alpha, who shares my uh, cinephilic tastes, um, also loves The Secret in Their Eyes, which I watched again last night. I've been on the road, and I got back, and I've been dying to watch it again after I gave up my list. That movie is so incredible. One word for it is exquisite. If at least one person goes out and finds the Argentine version of The Secret in Their Eyes and tweets me, that makes this entire podcast worthwhile. And if one person tweets me and goes, I saw it was terrible, Julia Roberts is awful, that's the remake of The Secret in Their Eyes. Please avoid that trash. Also starring Chiwetel Ejiofor. Watch the original version. It's an incredible film. And it was my number two. Million Dollar Baby was my number one. Of course, you can check out our lists. If you check on the previous podcast, go to iTunes. As always, give us some love there. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. iTunes is out of five. Leave a comment. Also a comment. Some guy compared me to Isaac Newton, which is the greatest hyperbolic comment I've ever received. He put what Isaac Newton is to science and Sadden Brick is to film. Find that guy. Send him a shirt. I really appreciate that. Ben Lines, I asked him for his list. He said he needs another week. He says in the middle of moving, he just didn't want to panic. Send you something he'd regret. So maybe we'll get Ben another time. He did say almost famous would be among his list. I think that was in my top 25. Right, so your but, original yeah. list. Uh, so, yeah, really appreciate all those uh, who were a part of that list. It was a lot of fun. Major news from the world of film. This is all I really care about. 
let's be honest. Pesci is now in for the Irishman. They have confirmed, apparently, Hollywood Reporter. I'm hoping this report is true. So we already knew De Niro's in. Of course, Marty is directing it. It's going to be start shooting next month, coming out to Netflix, probably 2018, 2019. Pacino, close to finalizing. But when I saw him at the the, uh, Tribeca Film Festival, he said he's in. De Niro, Pacino, and Marty for the first time. Harvey Keitel is in. And the latest word coming down, he was very reluctant, semi-retired from acting, but he's back. Joe Pesci is going to be back in the house. This is the murderer's row, okay, of my favorite actors. Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel in a film directed by Martin Scorsese. I'm just going to spontaneously combust when I watch this movie. How many times am I going to see this movie? I'm like, I'm going to go. I'll buy tickets to all three screenings that day. They're like, sir, what are you doing? Is this for other people? Like, no, it's for me. I'm just going to see it. I'm going to watch it three straight times. <laughs> Cannot wait for The Irishman coming to Netflix. How are you going to watch a movie on Netflix? Netflix is smart. They'll put it in theaters at least a week for guys like me who are going to go crazy. And I want to see it on the big screen. Cannot wait to see Spider-Man. We'll review that next time. Speaking of big screen, I'm going to try to watch an IMAX 3D in the whole bit. I look forward to that. Also, other movie news. Quentin Tarantino apparently not confirmed, but he's working on a movie about Charles Manson. So a lot of people were tweeting me, what do you think about this? He's been apparently asking A-list actors. Script's already written by QT. Brad Pitt apparently could be Manson. Christoph Waltz could be Manson, of course, a favorite of Tarantino's. Jennifer Lawrence apparently could be involved. So people wanted my opinion on it. Listen, I I, I feel a little uncomfortable just because that, you know, that material is so sordid. Uh, so it's not necessarily something I want to revisit. Uh, you know, I've, I've read enough pages of Helter Skelter. I'm aware of Manson and what happened. But Tarantino's a brilliant visionary. If he's got a great script and incredible film, I cannot wait to see it because that's the kind of guy QT is. Here we go. The Big Sick. What's it all about? Could be my life story. Pakistani man, although I was not born in Pakistan, but he comes from Pakistan, does stand-up comedy in Chicago. He's got his little buddies there. And then all of a sudden he meets a girl. They hang out a little bit, have a good time. She says, you know, do your parents know about me? He's like, oh, no, not yet, because his parents want to set him up with a Pakistani girl. So whenever they have dinner, there's a running gag. His mother says, oh, look who popped in. And that's just some nice Pakistani girl. She just happens to show up, and they're obviously trying to uh, set up their son. And he's just not into it, right? He's very, for lack of a better term, Americanized, Westernized. And his brother did have an arranged marriage. And he's like, listen, this is just the way it is. And and Kumail Nanjiani, who is the star, who's from Silicon Valley, this is his first starring role, says, oh, I'm just not comfortable with that. So he meets this girl, they, they meet cute, start to fall in love, nice rom-com values, and then she gets sick. And that's why the story is called The Big Sick. And then, oh, by the way, before she gets sick, excuse me, I should, spoiler alert, they have a huge fight. Because she says, you know, do your parents know about me? And every time he keeps meeting these girls, they leave a picture. So he leaves all these Polaroid pictures. It's like in a cigar box in his bedroom. So she's nosy. She opens the up. So what's all this? There's like, you know, 25 Pakistani headshots. Like, what is going on here? So then she says, oh, your parents don't know about me. And he's like, well, no, no, no. And she's like, oh, my God, you've been lying to me. He's like, I didn't lie to you. I didn't, I didn't tell you my parents were infatuated. I didn't tell you all the details, but you didn't tell me all the details. There's certain things about your life you didn't tell me. And there's this one great line, like she's crying, she's upset, she's furious. And he says, listen, I'm fighting 1,400 years of culture. You were ugly in high school. Like, this is not a fair fight. <laughs> like, if I, if I go and marry somebody of my own volition, my parents will not talk to me. Like, I'm excommunicated from my community. So big deal, you were ugly in high school. Like, are you kidding? Like, this is not the same thing. You're just like, oh, tell your parents about me. I'm like, I, I just can't do that, like, with my society my culture. And there's a lot of big, big laughs like that. And, you know, at first it feels like, oh, fish out of water, right? Okay, Pakistani guy. He's kind of acclimating to America, but he's, you know, like I said, he's fairly in the group. So they break up because she's furious with him, and then she gets sick. 
So he gets word from one of her friends because she calls and just says, listen, she's in the hospital. And, you know, I'm just letting you know. She maybe doesn't know the whole details. They've broken up. And it's apparently it's really serious. And then he meets her parents there. And they immediately give the cold shoulder. And the parents are played by Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. And Holly Hunter's like, no, we know who you are. She told us the whole story. I know about your parents. I know about the cigar box. Like, I got it. Like, I know what you're about. Just leave us alone. So they're like ice cold to him. And then the movie really develops, and it's about the relationship between Kumail Nanjiani and these two parents who were obviously a little skittish about this guy because the last time they checked, he, he broke their daughter's heart, and it goes from there. So what I loved about the film is, you know, most romantic comedies, you'd go meet cute, there's some sort of problems, and then it all works out. But with The Big Sick, it takes a lot of detours and avenues that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And as I mentioned, there's big, big laughs, and there's nothing funnier than this. Again, spoiler alert. When he's meeting with Ray Romano and Holly Hunter right there in the hospital. Again, Holly Hunter wants nothing to do with them. But then Romano sees him in the hospital. Like, he obviously cares about their daughter. He wants to check him out. He's all right, come over here. Have food. And Camille Nanjiani, I don't watch Silicon Valley, but he has a very deadpan style. You know, very clipped sense of humor. As is Ray Romano. Of course, I'm familiar with his work. It was very deadpan. So you got two kind of different styles of deadpan. And Romano says to him, so, what about 9-11? <laughs> and Nanjiani's like, what? what? And he's like, you know, I'm... Always want to talk about 9-11. And, and Nanjiani goes, you've never talked about 9-11 with anyone? And he goes, well, no, I'm just curious, you know, what, you know, with your people, what, you know, what, what's your stance? He's like, my stance? He's like, well, uh, I'm anti. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, I mean, we lost 19 of our best people. And Hunter is just eyes over head. He's like, that, that's a joke. Like, that, that, that is clearly a joke. I have not heard a crowd laugh that hard and more uncomfortable laughter in a long, long time. It was, and I, of course, was laughing as hard as anybody because I laugh a lot. But that crowd was great. So that's that's the kind of humor of the big sick. Like he's taking. There's at least a half a dozen Muslim jokes as terrorists. You know, there's one scene. It's, it may get Holly Hunter an, an Oscar nomination because Nanjiani's doing stamp, and the guy starts calling him a terrorist, and they start going back and forth. And Holly Hunter actually sticks up for him, and it's a great scene, and it's really funny. And I was doing some reading because Nanjiani based this script loosely based, you know, autobiographical. It's how he and his own wife. Uh, Emily Jones, I believe it is, actually met. So they co-wrote the script together. And they said in Seeking Inspiration, they looked at a lot of the films of James L. Brooks. Dan and I both love As Good As It Gets, which is a great romantic comedy with Jack Nicholson and Holly Hunter. But they said specifically they looked at broadcast news and they tried to achieve that balance of being serious and yet funny and romantic. That film stars William Hurt, among others. Albert Brooks is unbelievable. At it. Hey, movie. real quick. Yeah. As Good As It Gets, Helen Hunt. Oh, Helen, excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, Helen Hunt. Sorry. Okay. What did I say? Holly Hunter. Holly, yeah, no, no, Holly Hunter. Right. She's not been in both these films. Uh, so yeah, Helen Hunt, of course, won an Oscar for as good as it gets. Um, but yeah, broadcast news, uh, which I haven't seen in a long time. I'd love to see it again. People in TV love it. Uh, so I'm, I'm most uh, people in media have seen it. And it is really funny. Albert Brooks has one scene. It's incredible where he's just so nervous. He has to be the lead anchor chair. So I was just interested that that's who Nunjiani was looking for um, inspiration. But it's a really funny film. It's heartwarming. It's sweet. Uh, Holly Hunter and Romano are getting a lot of acclaim, but I thought his parents were excellent in the film as well. Anupam Kher plays his dad. He's a really famous Indian Bollywood actor. So Nanjiani has told the story. He said, when I told my dad, hey, guess who we got to play? We got Anupam Kher. He said his dad could not have been more thrilled. Uh, and he's really funny in the movie. So I think that the film is particularly timely in light of what's happening right now in the world and conversations about Islamophobia and I thought that it was really smart and funny, and it did so in a way that was really unique. So check out The Big Sick. There's a reason why it's getting rave reviews right now. Uh, it's currently at 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. 
Judd Apatow, by the way, co-produced it. Like most Judd Apatow films, it's about 10 minutes too long. So it's a one quibble, always with his movies, as much as I like him. Uh, but it's interesting how he came to it as well. And, and he's given all the credit to Kamel Nunjiani. Zoe, Kaz- Zoe Kazan, by the way, plays Emily in the movie. So it's not actually his real-life wife playing the role. But she's excellent in it, and she's really good. And hopefully she gets some acclaim as well. But Apatow said he, he heard of the film, and he just thought this is really smart, really funny, and really authentic, and he wanted to be a part of it. So I think his heft is helping the film get out there. Some of the trailers for it is just Judd Apatow's telling you why you should go watch The Big Sick. And then Johnny's actually been tweeting saying, listen, we're getting rave reviews. It's big on the indie circuit, but the more people see and talk about it, the more theaters will expand to. So my understanding is they're actually expanding wide this weekend. So if you haven't seen it, you've heard about it, not playing where you are, hopefully I'll get a chance to check it out. Funny, heartfelt, and intelligent. It is The Big Sick. Baby Driver. How entertaining is this movie? This is the perfect summer movie. And I saw the high score on Rotten Tomatoes. I said, get out of here. Can't be this good. 96%. Like, what is this about? And it's about a talented young getaway driver, Ansel Elgort, who is all about music. Because of an accident that happened to him in the past, he's always got earbuds in. He's always listening to music because it helps drown out the ringing, which is what his crime boss, Kevin Spacey, tells John Hamm and Jamie Foxx at one point in the movie. But this is one of the most entertaining thrill rides I've taken in quite some time. So this is a guy who's essentially a good heart, but... For reasons that the film explains, he's coerced into working for this crime boss, and he's the getaway driver, hence the title Baby Driver, and his name is Baby. That's all he goes by, is Baby. And it is like an ecstatic film. Movies that I think I can compare it to, especially in terms of energy, the opening bank heist scene, and the way that it's directed by Edgar Wright, it's just such a stylish film. It's train spawning. It reminded me of train spawning, just the opening, uh, you know, the beats of the music and the, the pulsating sense of it. Definitely shades of Tarantino. Uh, in terms of the the smart dialogue and the crime background. Uh, but it, it plays out like you're just kind of blasting your friend's coolest records. You're driving 100 miles an hour, and you're just having a great time. So it's got original style, unique characters. I suppose for some, maybe because as I'm, I'm studying those references of train spotting and, and Tarantino, maybe for some they could find a little bit derivative. But I thought it was almost uh, paying homage to those films or kind of channeling those sensations, yet doing so in an original way. I kept thinking, I'm like, man, this movie is so well directed. You know, tell me more about Edgar Wright, and then I realized, oh, of course Edgar Wright. He did Hot Fuzz, uh, Shaun of the Dead. You know, all those those British comedies that are really funny. So he's got a style all to his own, but. Baby Driver really surprised me. Spacey's good. J.B. Fox is entertaining. I saw him down in Miami at the uh, Celebrity All-Star Game, and uh, he's quite proud of his work. The real revelation beyond Ansel Elgort, who is Baby Driver, is John Hamm. John Hamm, as you've never seen him before. Uh, he's, <laughs> I'll say this, the final third of the film where I think maybe some people have some issues with, it goes way, way over the top, but I found it very funny, and, and you know, it kind of turns into a slasher flick, like they just... You know, these characters just will not die no matter what. But if you love fast cars, you're going to love it. If you love great music, it's the soundtrack of the year. If you like a stylish, exciting crime film, this one's the one for you. Baby Driver, I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. Dan, have you had a chance to? I'm assuming you haven't seen The Big Sick. Have you seen Baby Driver? I have not seen either, but they both sound fantastic. I think you'd like both. Uh, Quickly, Cars 3, Despicable Me 3. Cars 3, I actually liked. Cars 2 was terrible. Thankfully, on Dan's list, he mentioned Toy Story 3. Uh, it's one of his best of the century. Great animated film. Cars 2 would be on the list of probably one of the worst animated films of the century, unanimously despised, which raises the question, why is there a third? But the third, thankfully, bounces back. This time, the character of Lightning McQueen, voiced by Owen Wilson, now is in search of redemption, and he's getting help from Cruz Ramirez, who's voiced by Cristela Alonso. Um, so it's now a story of, okay, we went from upstart driver who was tutored by Paul Newman to now he is now the aging driver, and he's offering his tutelage and mentorship. You can see the way the beats are going, but it's 
touching for a uh, for an animated film, but it maybe it isn't surprising because Pixar always does a pretty good job with that. Again, it, it lacks the uniqueness and originality of the first film. It is nowhere near Toy Story 3 in terms of Pixar and making the third film, but it was better than I expected. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. As always, great animation. It was nice to see them go back to Radiator Springs again, and uh, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would have. And lastly, I just want to mention Despicable Me 3, one and a half Maple Leafs, not worth the time. It's Gru times two. Steve Carell finds that he has a brother. It's about as predictable and uninspired as you get. I found it rather aimless as it takes us on many, many journeys. Uh, thankfully, the minions do pop up from time to time, so they are the saving grace. But I'm giving Despicable Me 3 one and a half Maple Leafs. The only thing that is of note with this film is that um, the guys from South Park, you know, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, they obviously they always stick to their own stuff. But Trey Parker is actually the voice of the villain in this movie, Balthazar Bratt. And he's funny, and he's got some good moments. He's got this terrible mullet. He loves, like, 80s music. But honestly, it's really not worth the time. I'm surprised that maybe he just – Trey Parker was offered so much money. Let me just try something different than South Park for a change. I'll take Despicable Me 3, which I'm giving one and a half Maple Leafs. And also, on my flight when I was going from California to Miami for All-Star Weekend, because Dan loves Ben Affleck and, and I love gangsters, against my better judgment, even though it was not well-reviewed, I saw his film – I'm forgetting the title of it now. It was so bad. Live by Night, which is the adaptation of the Dennis Lehane novel. It's awful. And, and listen, I don't like watching movies on planes. When I, I was talking to my friend Jessica Mendoza, and she was telling me how much she liked Lion. And then Mark Deschard jumped in. He's like, yeah, how great's Lion? I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. And I saw the first hour spectacular. The second hour is solid, but then the ending's amazing. And she was like, oh, I love the whole thing. And just as like, oh, I saw it on the plane. And not to sound like a real snoot, but generally I do not like watching movies on planes, like especially a film like Lion. Like if I see Lion is available and I hadn't seen it, I'm like, well, let me just wait to go watch it on a big screen. Or obviously at this point it's well past that, but I would just find, you know, I'd find the DVD and, and watch it properly. But listen, there's no other way you can watch a movie. It's fine. With Live By Night, I'm not nearly as discerning. I can only just get this in here and see what it is. I watched one hour. I have no desire to finish the movie. Thankfully, the flight ended. You know, on the way back, I could have been like, all right, let me just go pick this up where I was. I'm like, no, I think I've seen more than enough. Every trope in the book, every cliche in the gangster handbook, Affleck's acting is wooden. Uh, directing is fine. It actually, it's a, his movies normally are uh, impressively mounted. He goes to Ebor in Tampa, and it looks nice enough, but I, I was... Stunned. It's a really just a terrible script. Like I said, it's just got. I, I cannot hammer enough just how uninspired this film is. Like every every detour you're expecting, it goes in that direction. And I like Dennis Lehane, the author. Of course, he's the author of uh, Mystic River, which Dan had uh, one of his best of the century. Uh, Shutter Island, of course, which I when I and this is a mistake I made because I love Marty so much. I when I heard Scorsese was making Shutter Island, I read Shutter Island first, which I shouldn't have done because then I saw the movie and obviously I knew the twist with DiCaprio and so on and so forth. So I'll never do that again. But Lehane's a really good author, and then I asked the people, and they said, those who have read Live By Night tell me it's one of his lesser works. He also wrote Gone Baby Gone. <laughs> there you go. See? So maybe, I think Stanzik may actually get Live By Night a chance, just because he loves Dennis Lehane and Bennett. No, actually, he realizes it's actually a terrible movie. not worth his time. Apologies to Zoe Saldana, Sienna Miller, Elle Fanning, Brendan Gleeson, Chris Cooper. Like, he's got a good cast, but I'm like, I'm sure halfway through the even we're wondering, what are we doing in here? Even with all that style, uh, Ben Affleck, an awful miss for him. I would give it a rating, but I didn't see the entire thing, which is not fair. But just avoid Live By Night. Regular listeners of Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, are well aware how much I love Popstar. I called it the funniest comedy of last year. I love mockumentaries, and that's why I'm thrilled to bring in Andy Samberg, who's got another hit on his hands with Tour to Pharmacy. The title alone is so funny because it's all about cycling. That's right. If you think, wait, Tour de France, Tour to Pharmacy, is that what this thing is about? Andy, thanks so much for coming on today, man. 
My pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great. This The concept for this, I mean, you've really kind of hit upon gold here when it comes to these uh, theories and styles, and, and particularly with this latest one. I, uh, where did the genesis of it come? Because I've already heard some earlier reviews from, from friends. I haven't had a chance to dive into it yet. But they just say the casting alone and the fact that, yeah, the big kahuna, Lance Armstrong, is in this. How did you pull this together? <laughs> um, well, this is a follow-up to another project that I made with uh, my buddy Murray Miller, who we were the you know exec producers, and he writes them. We're all buddies from summer camp. Um, we made a tennis documentary for HBO called Seven Days in Hell, which starred uh, me and Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones. Nice. And uh, the the intention going into that was to sort of do a comedy 30 for 30 or a comedy HBO sports, you know, doc series. Um, but we were sort of waiting to see how it was received. And uh, that one went over really well. So HBO said, what do you got next? So we sort of put our heads together and, and settled on cycling. And the, the the terrain of cycling, I guess it's more fertile than people would realize. Because, I mean, there's the, the obviously the classic stereotype with the, the shorts and just the look of it in general and obviously the PEDs. But apparently you've taken this one step further. Yeah, I would say we've taken it like 50 steps further. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's um, the, the, the key of comedy, though, right? you got to go all the way. Oh, yeah. Well, especially with these tonally, when we sort of set out to do it, part of the reason we were so excited to do something with HBO is that we could really just explode it and go crazy, not just in terms of things like nudity and language and stuff, but just conceptually really bizarre um, and sort of tangential and, and borderline psychedelic, I would say, at times. I think that's a perfect um, word for it. Is yeah, it's something that, that Murray and I both really love in comedy and sort of grew up loving in comedy. Um, so it's it's been a cool opportunity to sort of draw from comedy stuff we love and and sort of try and hone something slightly new that, that we have created together. Tour de Pharmacy is on HBO. Just listen to this cast, folks, because it's not only the talent, Andy, but just how it's so eclectic. James Marsden, Will Forte, <laughs> Julia Ormond, like she's known for like you know period pieces. John Cena, yes, the wrestler. Felicia Rashad, of course, yes, the Cosby Show. Dolph Lundgren, Mike Tyson, Orlando Bloom, and Freddie Highmore. How did you get these people? Well, it started with Murray just writing a really expansive script with a ton of characters, um, and then we just kind of got together and, and got together with our director Jake Zemanski and started talking about who would be a crazy choices for every role. Getting people like Julia Orman and Jeff Goldblum and, you know, sort of more respected actors. Yeah, Danny Glover, exactly. That's a great one. He plays the older version of Debbie Diggs. Really, really funny. Uh, yeah, it's all, I think, you know, partly for me having trained at SNL where everybody sort of comes through and you have the opportunity to get really huge name, distinguished people to do very silly things. I have a, a proclivity for wanting to do it more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of other stuff I've worked on, you know, like we had Sissy Spacek and Ian McShane and the movie Hot Rod we made, and that was like my first year on SNL we made that movie. So I, I've been trained to believe that I can get incredible people to do stupid things and so far, very luckily, have been able to keep that going. <laughs> if you can get Ian McShane away from that Deadwood character, Swearington, you're right. You're doing something right. Um, how how much of a challenge was it to get Lance? Because my understanding is he keeps trying to stay anonymous in this mockumentary, and you guys don't let him. How tough was it? 
Uh, it was not that tough. Murray wrote this bit into uh, Tour of Pharmacy for Lance Armstrong, and it was making us laugh really hard, and we figured he wouldn't go for it. Um, but as it turned out, I think he's slowly resurfacing around now. He, he started doing a podcast and that kind of thing. And um, so we just sent it over, and he read it and thought it was funny, and we asked him to watch Seven Days in Hell, and I think he thought that was pretty crazy and saw totally what we were going for. Um, not that it was going to be like a hit piece on cycling or on him or anything. It was just more goofy and crazy and was using cycling as the source material. Mm -hmm. Um, So we hopped on the phone and chatted really briefly and that was kind of it. We flew down to Austin and shot with him for a couple hours and it was, it was really not that much resistance at all. What's he like when you're just casually talking with him? Pretty mellow. I mean, I had met him. He hosted SNL while I was there, so I had met him before. So it was more just kind of like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Cool. Appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, it wasn't like we walked in and we're like, so, how you feeling, man? <laughs> I wasn't trying to, right. trying to get into it with him. It was more like we've got this this thing that we think is funny and obviously based on your career and everything that's gone down with you, we think it would be a really funny angle, but you know, it's been very interesting. I'm not going to lie. It's been interesting to see the reaction to it. Some people are like, man, that's really funny. And some people are still upset and there's really no right answer for that kind of thing. You know, now, the right answer is that people are loving it. 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. My friends have seen it. They love it. So as far as you're concerned, in my opinion, you're making entertainment and that's the key. Turn to pharmacy. It's on HBO. Let's talk pop star. I watched the Will Arnett scenes <laughs> twenty times, and I wish I was exaggerating. Andy, if you were here, you'd see the you could see the veracity in my eyes. You know, this guy's not lying because listen, my my taste can go all over the place. But I I had some of my friends that said, "Oh, pop star." Well, that'll be one of those movies where the, all the best parts are in the trailer, and the trailer is hysterical, especially the scene where you know the shot goes he misses badly in the shot, and all his buddies tell me nailed it. But the Will Arnett, like him, <laughs> him is Harvey Levin. Like the the shot, and I want to do this like literally shot for shot here. This where they start, they they start laughing psychotically. It cuts to Arnett with one straw, and then it goes back to them really going berserk, and then he's got like four <laughs> straws sucking out of his mouth. Tell me everything about that scene. <laughs> oh man, well that's making me feel fantastic because we love that stuff too. Uh, oh. You know, we had one beat in our script of like a fake TMZ. Uh, CMZ. Which one's the real one? I've lost track. <laughs> TMZ. Big um, <laughs> TMZ. And we knew we wanted Arnett and we wanted to cast other comedians in the parts. Um, and Judd Apatow, who produced Popstar, was the one who said, you know, if you're getting these killer people, maybe we should set, like, clear some, some schedule space, maybe like a half day, and just have them sort of riff on all the major plot points in the movie. And then you can use it almost, I, I said it would almost be like sort of a a murderer's row of comedians acting as like a Greek chorus for the, the story of the movie. Right. Um, so so we, we kind of followed Judd's lead on that. And sure enough, you know, we got those awesome people, you know, Chelsea Freddy and Birbiglia and, uh, and, uh, and Eric and Arnett, of course, who's just on fire. And we sort of just sat back and said, okay, so this is the part of the movie where, you know, Connor is naked on stage. Just go. And then they just started tweaking out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for anyone who's, for anyone who's enjoyed the movie, uh, there are a ton of extras uh, of that 
that stuff on the DVD or whatever people watch it on now on however you digitally get it. If you have the extras, it was tough to not put it all in. Yeah, that was my thing. Like, you, there's two of those TMZ clips, and I, I got one more. Like, I wanted like an hour of just these guys. Like you said, because it felt so natural. And that whole, uh, I don't think so, dude. <laughs> I don't think so. And the way they just laugh, like, and yeah, right. And I can just imagine on set, even like you said, you're trying to just get the best material, but sometimes you're like, dude, less is more. But this is so great. Yeah, and it got to the point where Arnett was like stapling his own dick. <laughs> and... <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> We were definitely, that was one of the more fun days for Keith Yorm and I, because we were all off camera just enjoying comedy and laughing. It's not only a hilarious premise, Andy, but it's it, the execution. And the humor is great, because it's so razor sharp. And like I said, I love a good mockumentary, and it's so satirical. But the music is legit. That song, she wanted me to blank her like Bin Laden. That's actually a great song. Like, like it's really well-written. It's very catchy. I was like, this guy actually nailed it with the music. And I mean, the, the Mona Lisa song, that's a good song. Like, how, how much work did you guys put in to be like, this has to be legit good pop music? Well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Um we definitely put a lot of time into it. You know, we've been training ourselves into making fake music for a long time now. It's, uh, it was a big part of what we did on SNL, and we were doing it before we got hired at SNL. And it's definitely something we love. And, you know, on this one, we even brought in, like, more pro producers to give a little bit of an extra pop scene to things because we were like, you know, you can mimic sort of grimy hip-hop stuff more without doing the big time bells and whistles. But we worked with this guy, Greg Kirsten, who does a ton of like real pop music with the biggest pop musicians that you can imagine. So for the particular ones you mentioned, uh, Mona Lisa and Bin Laden, and I think a few others we actually got with him and he added some like really big slick pop sheen stuff to it. And it does make a difference. You really do hear it. We were like, Hey, this is like sonically in that pop radio zone and it makes your brain feel kind of tingly in a different way so that was a really cool new experience for us musically because we were tackling you know wanting this guy to feel like he was really like radio hits right and like you said there's not only legit music and legit songwriters but now you've got legit cameos and i love mariah carey and she often gets a bad rap but she's obviously sending up herself and she's buying into the parody but there's the the best laugh mm-hmm. is the TMZ stuff. But there, the second biggest laugh, I would argue, is after you release the song about you know accepting same sex love and you and Pink. It's Ringo Starr saying, <laughs> "Why is he writing a song about this? Like it's already in law. Like what what is he doing?" <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, Judd got Ringo. I'm not going to act like it was anything but that. Judd somehow was like, "Hey guys, guess what? I've got Ringo Starr coming," and we were all like, "Oh my god, really?" Um, <laughs> So yeah, that was super cool. There's a beetle in our movie. Right. And even that song, it's like he's 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 in favor of same-sex marriage, but he keeps emphasizing I'm not gay. Not 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 gay. Like hey, just you know, I'm not. But hey, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that song is is like a new complaint uh which you know tells us how far we've come, which is you know, people being supportive of gay marriage, but not in the right way. (laughs) Exactly. It's on a different level. Uh, Tell me about Dick in a Box. How much do you still get asked about it? Is it at all bothersome at this point? You're trying to get to the airport, someone's running, and all of a sudden they're asking about JT and that immortal sketch? People definitely still bring it up to me, and uh, no, I'm definitely not sick of it. I have the luxury on that one of still really liking it. 
there's just something weird that happened on that one where all the things we love converge, you know, dick jokes, early 90s R&B, comedy, stupid outfits, music. It's, it's, there's something about it that I don't get tired of, which is really nice because it is definitely the thing that people say to me the most. It's funny you mentioned dick jokes. I remember and, and Apatow because remember he said that with the forty year old virgin. He was like, you know, I was amazed. All these critics really liked it, and they, they pointed out the fact it's got some real heart and humor to it. He goes, I just like that joke with, with Corelli because I just wanted to have jokes like that where he goes to the bathroom and he pees in his face because sometimes it's as infantile yeah. as that. But they give you props for it eventually. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say at this point we've done a, a lot of different types. if we were doing the same dick joke over and over again i wouldn't blame people for checking out and look they're not for everybody um but uh, i think you know as long as you mix it up and you do other kinds of comedy just to prove that you're capable of it then it is clear to people that it's a choice that you just personally find certain things funny right uh not that you're incapable of anything else um but you know the more serious and the more dressed up and the more important you make the dick joke, I think, the funnier it plays, at least so far. <laughs> yeah, the more sophisticated, the better. Last one for you, because I know you got to bounce, yeah. but Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I know you won a Golden Globe for it. When Terry Crews came to ESPN and visited us here in Central Connecticut, uh, the best compliment I could pay him, I said, you know, TV's never been better. Everyone keeps saying that. I love that bit you did, by the way, at the Emmys, where you're just you're trying to get through everything, because there's just too much. It's Amazon, it's live streaming, <laughs> it's HBO, it's, it's Showtime. Like, that was yeah. that was perfect, because everyone's going, hey, have you seen Transparent? And you go, no, I just haven't had time yet, but, but the new Game of <laughs> Thrones is there. Like, okay, God, like, there's just so, oh, but, but I never actually caught up on Breaking Bad. Oh, God, I gotta go back and watch Homeland. Like, that was perfect. But here's the best cop I can play, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, in an era in which there's so much out there, and especially with cable, you can take so many chances. I think you guys should get more credit for what you're doing, because, yeah, Veep is really funny, but obviously they don't have the challenges you guys do. You're actually making a classic situation comedy, and have done so in a great way. And one of my favorite actors, the great Andre Brower, who was so amazing in Homicide, yeah. and now he's playing a different type of cop, and he ends a lot of gravitas to it as well. So I, I hope you recognize how tough that challenge is that you guys do, and how much we appreciate that. Well, thank you for saying so. We love making that show, and I think we have we certainly have an audience out there that watches it and, and lets us know they love it. And look, it's, it's exactly like you said, the the thing I did for the Emmys was the truth. There's a million shows out there and there's a ton of really good stuff. And all you can really do is put your head down and keep making it and, and keep making something you believe in. Um, I feel like we've got one of the best comedies out there. I feel really proud of it. It makes us laugh every week and, I don't know. I just feel really lucky to be able to keep making it and to make it with such talented people. Well said. Tour to Pharmacy currently on HBO course. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is on Fox. Andy Samberg was our guest. Thanks so much for the time, Andy. And come visit us sometime at ESPN. We'd love to have you. I'd love to do it. Thanks for having me on. After Showcase. Timing-wise, did not work out last time when we were recording uh, our latest podcast, then the Daniel Day-Lewis news came down. So obviously I'm reeling like many that he's retiring. But I hold out hope because he did this before. In 1997, he retired after the boxer. And then Marty had to hunt him down. He was a cobbler. I mean, he's literally making people's shoes. And Scorsese found him and convinced him to play Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York. So the brilliant among us, the true geniuses, are a little eccentric. So when Daniel Day-Lewis at the age of 60 says, you know, I'm retiring, A, I don't buy it. I'm hoping it's like a Floyd Mayweather retirement. And B, even if he does retire, 
He's rather sporadic with his film choices. He only makes movies every four or five years anyway. So my belief is this. He's retiring, but then he's going to be, you know, lured back in when he's 70 to play King Lear. And then I can't wait to watch Daniel Day-Lewis in King Lear. He's one of my favorite actors. I don't know many people who would dispute that he is one of our greatest actors. Even those that, you know, may not like his films, don't like serious movies, would all say, yeah, when you think of brilliant actors... You think of Daniel Day-Lewis. So even my brother had texted me, so I want to know what your five is. It's actually a pretty easy list for me. As much as a great actor he is, my five is pretty straightforward. And by the way, as brilliant an actor as he is, everyone's got a hole in their resume. His worst movie is the movie Nine. If you've never seen that movie, Daniel Day-Lewis, and I love him, but he can't really sing. He can't really dance. So I give him credit for at least trying to appear in a musical. Um, The Source Material is one of my favorite movies. Of course, Fellini's film, Eight and a Half. And then they made it into nine. So if you've never seen Eight and a Half, you should watch the Fellini film. Uh, it's about a director suffering through a personal crisis and trying to navigate his way through. And then nine, they adapted it into a film. Be Italian is a great song. And in fact, Josh Duhamel was here recently. He was t- Fergie, his wife, is in the movie. And she's really good. And she sings some good songs. The music is good. But Day-Lewis, uh, nine is easily his worst film. His great film, so many to choose from. Number five, My Left Foot, playing Christy Brown. It's the film that really kind of put him on the map, and it showed that this was a guy who was going to be invested the entire way through. All the stories were told afterwards, but the fact that in order to play this painter who only has movement of his left foot, that's how he stayed in character the entire time. So he's suffering through this malady not only on the film, but he wanted to do it at all times because, as he said, Christy Brown had this all the time. So it was only fair that if I'm going to play this character, that's how I should do it. It absolutely breaks your heart. It's a beautiful film. It still holds up. Came out back in 1989. Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot. Brenda Fricker also great playing his mother. It's one of those biopics that people always talk about for a good reason. Speaking of biopics, Lincoln's number four. I actually DVR'd it. I'm going to watch it again now that I've heard about his retirement because I want to just savor some Daniel Day-Lewis films. I, I only saw it the one time, and I did really enjoy it in the theater. Rosillo argues with me. He thinks it's a great movie. Well, I don't even think it's great. I think he, he thought it was okay. He goes, but I'd never watch it again. I thought it was great. I don't have a huge yearning to watch it again, but like I said, because he's retiring, I'll watch it again. Dan? No, I just think he was great. I don't think the film was that great. I think right. you and I used to agree that we would never watch the film again. It was one right. of those, like, you've seen it once, you never want to see it again. But I understand with him retiring, you want to revisit it. Right. It was He was so good that you almost forgot it was an actor. You are just like, he was just Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I, I don't. I have no urge to watch it again. Did you read the Doris Kearns Goodwin book? Or, Get out of here! Come on, listen. You love. I mean, Doris I do read. I like yeah. Doris Kearns Goodwin, yeah, but they, I don't read her work. I just think she's a great personality. She was a regular guest on the Colbert Report. When people hear Doris Kearns Goodwin, they think of you. I'm just letting you know that around. We're like, oh yeah, stands like a big Doris Kearns Goodwin guy. <laughs> Huge historian. Dan loves to read. Apparently, that book is amazing. The Lincoln stuff. The best part of his impression of his that impression is his performance. The voice. Because here's the mistake people would make. They go, all right, here's this legendary figure, titanic figure in history. He's going to have presence, a big booming baritone. But he's like, no. He did the research, and he's like, Lincoln actually had a higher voice, and it was a reedy voice. What a great word that is, R-E-E-D-Y. He said, I looked it up, and especially of that area, it had a slight twang to it, but I couldn't enhance it. So, Lincoln, you think of this great orator, one of the greatest of all time, and you think he sounds like Martin Luther King? Like, no. High-pitched, reedy Slight twang, but it's incredible because it was true to the form. And he's he is tall to begin with, but the film makes him look like he's like six nine. But again, he was gaunt, and Daniel Day Lewis can lose weight with the best of him. He's like, all right, I'm gonna get down to being a beanpole. Tall, skinny, had the beard perfectly, uh, just his presence. And even he has said, you know, because he gets into character and he does not leave them. He said with Lincoln, he actually 
as he told 60 Minutes, he goes, the character kind of stayed with me a little bit. He goes, normally, if I'm playing, you know, Bill the Butcher, I'm invested as Bill the Butcher for nine months of my life, and then I can't wait to get out of the skin. But he goes, I just enjoyed Abraham Lincoln being him so much. He kind of stayed with me, and I, I think he's, you know, I've maintained elements of him. Spielberg could not have had a better home run than that one uh, in terms of casting, Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln. Age of Innocence is a film I love. I'm going to do it on Scorsese's stories at another time and tell you why I think it's such a great film and underappreciated. But he's amazing as Newland Archer. Speaking of the big sick, parallels here. Newland Archer is this upper-class socialite who is supposed to get married to uh, Winona Ryder but does not want to because he's in love with Michelle Pfeiffer, who is this divorcee who is rather scandalous. So just as the big sick is about a man trying to find love outside of his culture, also The Age of Innocence, based on the Edith Wharton classic novel is also but a man trying to find marriage outside of his uh, accepted social circles it's an incredible movie i love what marty did with it age of innocence number three number two is there will be blood of course i talked a ton about that on the previous podcast you want to hear that listen he's just unbelievable there's a nation of oil underneath my feet he's just so good ladies and gentlemen when i say that i'm an oil man this is my son and my partner hw he's just one of the great villains that you'll ever see as daniel claimed you in there will be blood it's a film with such big themes, you know, money, oil, power, greed, uh, just the way that it can consume one. It's, it's, it's like the birth of America, for God's sake. It's all about capitalism, except the birth of America really is my number one film. And, of course, that is Gangs of New York. Bill the Butcher, Amsterdam, I'm New York. You tell young Valen, I killed, no, I killed the father. Now I'll take the son. You tell young Valen, I'm going to paint paradise with his blood. Two coats. Unbelievable performance. He just he listened to Eminem while making the movie. Daniel Day-Lewis said he'd see him at the gym. It was shot at this Cinecitta Studios, which is in Italy. It's where Federico Fellini would do his films. And DiCaprio said he saw him a few times in the gym. But Day-Lewis stayed in character, did not start to asking, hey, Leo, how's it going? Hey, nice day today to be off. He just walked by and said, Amsterdam. And that's it. And Leo goes, all right, leave him alone. I guess I'll get to know the real Daniel Day-Lewis once this movie's over. But... It was funny that Daniel Day-Lewis loved sharing that anecdote. He's like, yeah, I just I had to get angry, so I would listen to Eminem all the time. I worked out like a fiend. <laughs> and when, especially when you see Daniel Day-Lewis in interviews, he's so refined and articulate and reserved. And then if you juxtapose it with Bill the Butcher and Gangs of New York, like you're like, this could not be further from who this guy is. That's why he's one of our great American actors. Daniel Day-Lewis, there's the Actors Showcase. Gangs of New York, There Will Be Blood, Age of Innocence, Lincoln, My Left Foot. I think it's an American actor. one of the great actors, of course, English actors. I think I only got one gripe. I have not seen Age of Innocence. Feel free to yell at me. That's fine. Yeah. The only film of his that I've seen and Last liked. Last Mohicans. No, In the Name of the Father. Oh, yeah, also great. Just missing the cut. Okay. Uh, I love Pete Postlewith as well. He plays his dad in the movie. Don't be lying to me when I can see the truth staring me in the face. Again, this goes to Stanzik's heritage. Irish people always love in the name of the Father. Whenever it's like St. Patrick's Day, people are like bombard with, hey, how great is the name of the Father? I'm like, yeah, it's a great movie. What's the film that was nominated for Best Picture a few years ago where the woman travels from Ireland? Oh, I hated it, and you liked it. I did. I enjoyed yeah, it. I hated the it. Roots. Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn. Yeah, I yeah. hated that movie. Yeah, somebody, somebody asked me, they go, what was your worst nomination? I go, Brooklyn Best Picture. That movie could not have been more. Uh, every Irish person in America. Beautiful. What? Beautiful story. Angela's Ashes was also great. I'm like, I'll, I'll stick with the book. Not so sure about the movie. <laughs> Homeless guy sitting on the street. Rich guy walks by. Homeless guy says, can I have some money? Rich guy says, he looks at him with that gaze, you know. Neither borrower nor lender be. William Shakespeare walks away. Homeless guy takes a second, stares at him and goes, oh yeah? F you. David Mamet. 
It is a testament to the greatness of David Mamet that a four-letter profanity that is used by people liberally, people will always identify with David Mamet. He is the ultimate when it comes to gutter-level poetry, and never more better than in Glengarry Glen Ross, which is my second favorite script of all time. It's my favorite play of all time. Second favorite, of course, by Taxi Driver in terms of just original scripts. Paul Schrader, of course, wrote that one. Uh, it's my favorite play, just ahead of Death of a Salesman. And David Mamet is my favorite writer, ahead of Hemingway, Richard Price, and a few others. So these master classes are being offered now for people. And what this is, if you hadn't heard about it, you go to the master class, you pay 90 bucks, you sign up, and you can see this artist talk about their work. So I was like, you know what? If Dan said to me, hey, David Mamet's going to be in Connecticut, I'm like, all right, we can go hear him speak for five hours, and it's 90 bucks. I'm like, let's go. So, and of course, we'd have the advantage of, with this that he can kind of take a break here and there. Five hours of mammoth, maybe a lot in one sitting. So at least with here, it's all condensed into 26 lessons, about 10 to 12 to 15 minutes each. You get a taste of whatever mammoth's talking about, and he's teaching you about writing. And it's just so much fun to actually hear the writer speaking. And when David Mammoth talks, he talks very deliberately. When I always say writing, now I'm going to start saying writing, because David Mammoth articulates the T in writing. And it's literally just him at a desk, staring at the camera, talking. Narrative, characters, exposition, dialogue, directing actors, each part, 10 to 12 minutes, and away we go. David Mamet's writing is a four maple leaf. Not only Glengarry Glen Ross, The Verdict, The Untouchables, um, State and Maine with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Alec Baldwin, William H. Macy's very funny. The Edge, I think, is a great script, underrated action movie. Um, I'm missing the, the Spanish Prisoner with Steve Martin. Like, whatever the script is, Wag the Dog, it's going to be great. Plays, Glengarry Glen Ross, American Buffalo, Speed the Plow, Oleana. So whether it's, you know, actual screenplays or plays, Mamet's an incredible writer, and he's also directed some of those films. And Homicide's a movie which I think doesn't get enough love, and I adore the script. The movie I know has some, I have some quibbles with it, as much as I enjoy it, but the script I think is incredible. And the thing about Mamet more than anything you know with him, even in the movies that don't work, Red Belt was not a very good movie. China Doll, which I paid an extravagant amount of money to go watch with my wife, Al Pacino starred in it, was about uh, as atrocious a piece of work as I've ever seen. It goes back to the theory my agent and I have said before, that all great artists only have, and I'm curious if you agree with this, Dan, a certain amount in them. Meaning, there's a reason why we're in 2017, and David Mamet hasn't made a great piece of work in at least 10 years. Because he's 70. Like, his best work, your best work's going to be in your 30 to 50, and then after that, maybe you repeat yourself a bit, maybe you run out of ideas, whatever it is. But the bottom line is, sorry, do you agree with that? Disagree. I do. I have a theory uh, or an agreeance yeah. to your theory, and I always do it with rappers because a lot of people get their creativity from life experience. So rappers, their first album is always, I grew up poor. Here's what happened to me. The second album is, now I'm rich. Here's how I spent my money. Right. And the third album normally flops. No more life experience to write about. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. It's not only just hunger and desire, but no more life experiences. But Mammon at the rather start says, write it down. See what you came up with. Are you going to hate it? Yeah. Are you sometimes going to love it? Yeah. And then are you going to hate yourself for feeling so self-confident and doubt yourself? Yeah. Welcome to my world. At one point, he says, my wife knows it's really cooking when Tuesday and Thursday I tell her I've got the script that's unbelievable. And Wednesday and Friday, I tell her I'm the worst writer ever invented. Because that's my life. So when you're writing and you feel like you hate it, trust me, I still feel that way. That's just who we are. Uh, here's some other... <clears throat> observations from David Mamet. The characters are what they do. Nobody sat down and said, oh, I'm going to be this. I'm going to be the that. Oh, look, there's the corrector of mistakes. There's the Martinet. 
It's also funny just hearing him speak because he speaks sometimes like his characters. Um, famously in, in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, they often say blah, blah, blah. My friend Kevin, I always joke about it. Harriet and blah, blah, Nyborg. So Mammoth often when he's talking, he goes, all right, so suppose you're writing your character and he's got the blah, blah, blah. He also likes using the expression bippity-boo. So Mammoth will say, you know, when I was working on um, Wag the Dog and all of a sudden Robert Dieter and Dustin Hopper doing the bippity-doo and the blah, blah, blah. It's just an interesting affect that he has when he's talking. He also says writing a plot is one of the hardest things I ever learned how to do. It's just hard because it's like playing with some unclean substance, and it is because the unclean substance is your own consciousness. The difficulties of the hero are the same thing as the difficulties of the writer. One scene, he actually structures this plot and talks about American Buffalo. American Buffalo is about a bunch of guys in a junk shop, and it's tragedy. That means people have more or less good intentions. They end up ruining each other in a way that they could not foresee. But at the end of the play, it's revealed as inevitable. And at the same time, surprising. Mamet talks about the use of narration, whether or not he likes it. But here's the biggest thing about David Mamet. No matter who the writer is, there's always a calling card. And with David Mamet, nobody can touch his dialogue. So I could not wait for uh, episodes 13 and 14, which he speaks about his dialogue. And Mamet said, why do people speak in real life like we do now? They speak to get something from each other. It might seem like they speak to express themselves, but as I understand it, that's not true. They only express themselves to get something from one another. And he says that's the key with his dialogue. His dialogue is so much fun to listen to. Aaron Sorkin is a great writer. People often point out how much fun his dialogue is, but they don't think it's realistic. Well, Sorkin borrows heavily from Mamet, because with Mamet, you're always going to get a few things. Gutter-level profanity, repetition, clipped sentences. So think about the famous scenes. I'm, I'm assuming most of you have seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, when they're talking about the leads. And even he said, Mamet, because, you know, you watch most movies or plays, the first 10 minutes are unnecessary. He mentions one of Dan's favorite recent movies, Arrival. And he goes, you know, I saw this movie, Arrival. It was a pretty good movie because, you know, Elaine's this and that. And he goes, well, the first 10 minutes, like, they don't need all that stuff. They just need to get to the thing, the blah, 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 and the bippity-boo. And he goes, just get going. And he goes, and even once they kind of figure out, you know, hey, here's how you're going to communicate, he goes, they kind of just stumble upon it. He goes, like, you know, you don't have to explain too much. It's just like, how would you end up talking to these aliens? Because that's the whole thing. Eventually, you just figure a way out of it. So just like as a writer, you figure your way out of it. So with Glengarry Glenn Ross, he said, you know, the play starts to talk with the leads. You go, what are leads? And quickly understand, even though you don't work in real estate, oh, leads is the information you're given. Then you follow the lead. You try to get a sale. What does it mean to close? It means to close a sale. Mamet himself worked in real estate, and he said that was the inspiration for Glengarry Glenn Ross. And he said it was just an awful job. Because he goes, so many of these people are scoundrels. And at one point he goes, listen, politicians, we know they're all whores. Because everybody knows that. And famously, if you dig up some work on Mammoth, the last 10 years, he shifted from being a liberal to a conservative. And he wrote a very famous article in which he said, why stop being a brain-dead liberal? I believe he supported Ted Cruz in the most recent election. So it was actually funny. In this master class, he did not make it clear that I'm now a conservative. He goes, hey, we know all politicians are whores at the end of the day. But he goes, with these people, they're just crooks. He goes, some of the stuff they're doing is accurate, some of it's not. He goes, but most salespeople are crooks. And Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, nobody's talking to express themselves. They're all trying to get something from each other. Ricky Roma is not being nice to Jonathan Price's character because he's a nice guy. He's doing it to get the sale. And he starts talking about these long, winding digressions, and that's the key. And he said the most important thing, if you're an aspiring writer, is to make the dialogue fun and fun to listen to. Because you want to be able to have this type of musicality to it, which in all of Mammoth's work, you always find the dialogue is just so much fun to listen to. Sorkin's another example of somebody who, when you listen to the dialogue, you just say, oh, my God, this is just so much fun to listen to.
So I encourage you all to watch David Mamet's Masterclass. If you're an aspiring writer, you'll get more out of it than I did. Because, you know, you go through each one. There's a chapter recap. There's actually homework that you're supposed to do. Obviously, I was just watching it as if I'd watch a movie. I'm just, I just love Mamet and like listen to him talk. He also says there are three questions. Who wants what from who? What happens if they don't get it? Why now? Three questions. Who wants what from who? What happens if they don't get it? Why now? That's the key of every scene. You've got to be able to answer those three simple questions on any scene in any play. Who wants what from who? What happens if they don't get it? Why now? It also talks about dialogue because, you know, you want to know, as often, somebody asks me, who do you like or a favorite sportscaster who inspires you? So who inspires Mamet? So with dialogue, he mentions some people I've never heard of, some obscure playwrights. And, of course, he mentions Hemingway. You know, Hemingway's dialogue is so good. People often focus on the prose, and it's just so terse. But he goes, the dialogue, he goes, look at a book like Islands in the Stream, he goes, which is not one of his more notable works. But he goes, it literally is husband and wife are walking along the beach, and their, their uh, son is out to war. And the husband is quiet, and the wife says, it's about the boy, isn't it? And the husband says, yeah. And the wife says, he's dead, isn't he? And the husband says, sure. Mimic goes, genius. He goes, genius. I had the same reaction as Dan as I was watching. I was like, "What? I, like, I, okay, what's so genius about it?" Like, just so he says, "Sure." You should, you should honestly, you should pay the ninety dollars just to watch Mamet's face. That you should see. Husband walks down. Him and the wife. It's about the boy, isn't it? Yes, he's dead, isn't he? Sure. Genius. Can't elaborate why that's genius, <laughs> but I, I think his point is that it's just so blunt and succinct. Uh, you've got to stand being bad if you want to be a writer, because if you don't, you're never going to write anything good. You cannot learn how to write drama without writing plays, putting them out in front of an audience, and getting humiliated. All drama is about something that is hidden. And one last story about David Mamet. His stories are often about tough guys. Oleana he was heavily criticized for because he took the story of sexual harassment and kind of turned it on its head. In that story, the professor is aggrieved. It was in light of all the Clarence Thomas stuff. It was in the early 90s. And Mamet, some of the criticism sometimes he gets from women is people think his plays are misogynistic or scripts. And he addresses that at one point. He goes, listen, I love women. I think I actually have stronger female characters than people realize. But there's no doubt a lot of my plays are very heavily involved with tough guys and criminals and shady types of people. And then if you read some of the stuff he said about the Middle East and his political comments, he comes across as a bit of an ornery, perhaps a stubborn guy. So here's my David Mamet story on a personal level. I'm working a couple of years ago on the college football coverage. and. Dak Prescott, a lot of you sports fans know, plays for the Dallas Cowboys, played for um, in college, obviously. Completed a pass to Fred Ross, and I said, more like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, ABC, always be closing. Back with more up to this. My friend Gabe Oppenheim, who is the best, follow him on Twitter. Nobody loves old movies more than Gabe. Nobody loves Japanese cinema more than Gabe. Maybe my friend Mark Kalmanichi. Those two would be great head-to-head. Gabe hears it, emails me, goes, that was so great, a little mammoth. I'm like, yeah, why not, during the broadcast. Hey, somebody hot that. A few hours later, I got an email, and the subject thing just says, from David Mamet. And it just, the email reads, hello, I heard the Fred Ross, Dak Prescott quip, which is about the nicest thing I've ever heard. Please send me your address so I can send along a gift. David Mamet. I had almost explodes on set. I'm like, this, this can't be the David Mamet. So I, I checked with my agent. I said, okay, is this email address legit? And because he, he's got some contacts, and he goes, yeah. He goes, that, that's one of his email. He goes, he has several. That's one of his email addresses. And my agent goes, I've, I've met him a few times. I don't know him that well, but yeah, that's him. So I wrote back this manifesto about how much I love David Mamet, which he did not write back to that email, probably in fairness. It was like 10,000 words. I want to tell him how much I love him and love his work. But then he sent me a little book, and it's a book of caricatures. It's the strangest thing. 
it's this, you know, David Mamet book that he put up of caricatures, and inside is a portrait of himself. Like, he did a self-caricature, and it just says, uh, Dear Adnan, thank you so much for your support of my work. I hope you enjoy this. So David Mamet may always write about tough guys, may seem like a tough guy, but he's a sweetheart because he did that for me. Now, last part of that, he didn't actually hear it. I'm like, there's no way David Mamet, who is a sports fan, he loves uh, UFC, he loves boxing. I'm like, there's no way he actually heard that. At one point he actually mentions, oh, yeah, my Cubs recently won. He's a big, big Chicago guy. Gabe is such a sweetheart. When Gabe heard me say it, he somehow, through intricate means, like a labyrinth, he looked up David Mamet's contact information, got a hold of his lawyer, blah, 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 as Mamet would say, and got it to Mamet that, hey, my friend Adnan's a big fan of his. He just said this on the air. The lawyer then told Mamet, and then Mamet got a hold of me. But many other people come like, yeah, okay, great. David Mamet goes, oh, that's really nice of this kid. I'm going to send him an email. That's the kind of guy David Mamet is. Enroll in his master class. And joining us now is Richard Sandemir, writer for the New York Times. Of course, for years he worked in sports. He's now one of the obituary writers, and his new book is Pride of the Yankees, which he was kind enough to send to me. Richard, thank you so much, and welcome to Cinephile. Well, it's great to be here. I really enjoyed the book, and I know that you've been out there promoting it for good reason, because for a lot of us who love sports and love movies like I do, you can't think about Lou Gehrig without thinking about Gary Cooper. And I read uh, Jonathan Icke's book a few years ago, which is uh, wonderful, Luckiest Man, and, and you, you really feel the weight of Lou Gehrig and what he went through and the kind of person that he was. And I think your book, Pride of the Yankees, which is available now, smartly picks up where Icke almost kind of left off. Like you, you start with, this is who Lou Gehrig is, the last chapter of his life. Kind, clean, decent, hardworking, the complete antithesis of his carousing, hard-charging uh, teammate Babe Ruth, and then he dies tragically, and how it all goes from there. And then the impetus to then actually make the film. We'll get to all the, the machinations of that, but this is what is most notable to me, not only about the book, but just about the story, is you had to get the perfect guy to play Lou Gehrig, and they got Gary mm-hmm. Cooper. And Gary Cooper right. is perfect, right, because he's got that sense of being the great hero, and we think about nobility and high noon. And yet here's the crazy thing why everyone should read the book Gary Cooper can't play baseball. How in the world did he play Lou Gehrig so well? Well, it it wasn't a great requirement in 1942 that an actor like Gary Cooper be a great athlete. The sports film genre had barely existed up to this point. And Samuel Goldwyn, the producer, knew nothing about sports, knew nothing about baseball especially. And... Uh, he had Cooper as his uh, under contract. It was the last film. He had one more film under contract to, with Cooper. And this was the guy who was going to play him. The amusing thing to me was that uh, for several months after Eleanor signed her deal with Goldwyn, uh, Goldwyn staged a so-called search for the actor to play Gehrig. And in the list of the Sporting News and Cosmopolitan and the Gallup organization, to poll people uh, and reporters as to who should play Gehrig. And the actors whose names came up included John Wayne, Eddie Albert, William Gargan, Cary Grant, uh, Spencer Tracy, athletes who came up. Believe it or not, some people voted for Babe Ruth as Lou Gehrig. So, uh, but the thing was, this was, this was all a ruse. It was a publicity stunt uh, that was, the bug was put into Goldwyn's ear by the gossip queen Luella Parsons. And by by Christmas, uh, the one of the world's worst kept secrets was revealed that Gary Cooper was going to play him. Now, he didn't know how to play baseball. That was clear. He grew up in Montana, spent three years in England, learning to be a little gentleman when he was between eight years eight and eleven. 
So he spent six weeks learning to play baseball from uh, Lefty O'Doul, the former National League batting champion. And, you know, you can criticize his swing, but after six weeks of a 40-year-old guy who'd never played baseball, I think he did okay. Yeah, like it's amazing. I was talking to my friend Tim Curtin about it, you know, like how they could, because mm-hmm. there was always those stories, and, and your book does a great job of specifically detailing the whole concept of, you know, how can a righty swing lefty? And it's one thing to be able to do it. Like if you and I just grabbed a bat, like, all right, we can do it. But to actually portray that convincingly on film, one of the great sluggers of all time, and the whole concept of running the third base and all the rest of it, like that's an incredible challenge at that time. Well, yeah, but he, he didn't have, it, it, it wasn't as great a challenge as it seemed because. A, Goldwyn ordained that this would not be a baseball movie. And in fact, there's maybe 10 or 12 baseball uh, minutes of uh, baseball action in the movie. It's a love story. It first off is a story about a courageous guy who faced death and said he was the luckiest man on the face of the earth uh, only weeks after getting the ALS diagnosis. And uh, the love story between uh, portrayed by Gary Cooper and Teresa Wright is the heart of the movie as well as the speech. The speech does not require any athletic skill. So it requires a really good actor who was accustomed to playing men of quiet dignity. And that is what he did. This was not that hard a role for him. He was concerned. Cooper was concerned only that people, uh, you know, their, their memories of Gehrig were so clear and so recent that how do you distinguish yourself from that? He didn't have to distinguish himself in a way. He became Gehrig. He became Lou Gehrig. And the speech became uh, the speech that we know, the speech that he gave, not the speech that Gary gave, because that speech is not intact. Only a few lines left from the newsreel. The full Cooper version is the is really the one that we know of, the and one that we refer to back. It is a different speech than Gary gave, but it is the speech that most of us remember. Yeah, that's a great point. We're talking Richard Sandimer, author of Pride of the Yankees. Tell us that part in detail, because I found that fascinating in the book. That what they even not only because you're right, the actual script of what he said verbatim does not exist and in the film they changed the order of it to make it more dramatic yeah uh, you know Eleanor Garrick told several stories about the provenance of the speech but the most significant thing that she said was that when she told Goldwyn that Cooper had to recite the speech as it was given by Garrick well she said I'm going here is the speech I'm giving it to you from memory now, her memory may have been as good or as bad as the reporters who covered the speech. It's all around the lot. So the, the so-called official version that she gave to Goldwyn is really not the official version. Remember, Garrick walked out onto the field without anything in hand. He ad-libbed the speech, which is incredible. So uh, when the speech was delivered by Cooper, it was about 60 to 70 words shorter and thanked fewer people. The luckiest man line, which in the official version, which may not be real, uh, uh, was the second line. And it was the final line uh, in, in the movie speech for dramatic emphasis. I think that was a very good, uh, a, a very good place to put it. And it's the way we remember it. I mean, you know, I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. He walks off, walks off the field and walks into the dugout, into the darkness, into death, and, and, and the world, and everything else goes on. Play ball is the last line you hear. You're right. It's amazing. We work in sports media, and yet more people would be more familiar with the Gary Cooper speech than the actual Lou Gehrig speech. The film endured. Yeah, and, 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 Sorry, go ahead. And, 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 it, and it shows the effectiveness that, 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 uh, that Cooper had. Had anybody else deliver the speech? I can only think of maybe Henry Fonda or Jimmy Stewart of that generation of actors 
who might have been able to sustain that and sustain the impact of 75 years. I, I, I think it's an incredible performance. And for an actor known for his cowboy terseness, these are the lines that, uh, that, that Gary Cooper is best known for. And in fact, he recited them over and over again when he went on a USO tour of the South Pacific, uh, speaking to the troops in 1943, a year and a half after the movie came out, soldiers asked him to recite the speech. They weren't reciting to ask anything from Meet John Doe or, or anything else he'd ever done. These were the words in, you know, the words, 200 words or so that he's best known for. It's important for films to endure, and in today's age, you can do so because there's just so many ways to watch movies. Of course, we go to theaters, you can stream, you can DVD. How important was it for Pride of the Yankees to endure as a film by being available on late-night television in New York City and then throughout the country, and then, of course, now with great outlets like TCM? Well, sure. I mean, look, if, if, the, if, if the movie was never shown again after 1942, it would have died, but... It's not overdone. You don't see it a lot, but clearly, it's people play it on, on uh, you know, on DVD as DVD as uh, as a video cassette. That's uh, and TCM and the MLB Network uh, play it every year. It's uh, I don't know how many times it's played worldwide, but this is an enduring sports film. It's, I call it the first great sports film which doesn't mean there was a lot of competition in 19, by 1942 for that. The sports film genre you know, was, was a very small one, but it is kind of the template for many sports movies going forward where the human emotion, the human relationships take precedence over the, uh, over the action. I, I think if you made Pride of the Yankees now, you couldn't have an actor who couldn't play baseball as the star. We see from the movies of the 80s, with Kevin Costner and Robert Redford, and we see with Chadwick Boseman playing uh, Jackie Robinson, you have to have an athletic actor. He needs to know how to play baseball and maybe just needs a little bit of brushing up. You can't have a Gary Cooper-like actor who couldn't play baseball. Uh, you know, there's, there's a great story uh, that was put out by the publicity people at, at Goldman Pictures where uh, Cooper was apparently getting so adept, the story goes, at hitting uh, in practice, that, that he, he and Lefty O'Doul were in the, his backyard, and the backyard in Cooper's Brentwood Estate was like seven acres. And one day, he hits a mighty clout that goes over the house, across, the, across Chaparral Street, and crashes into Tyrone Powers' house, interrupting breakfast between Tyrone and the missus. And Cooper, being a responsible guy, is upset by this. And uh, he walks up the, the, uh, the walkway to Tyrone Powers' house and out steps Tyrone Powers' maid, who apparently is from Central Casting because she says to him, now, Coop, this is the second time in a week you've done this. Can't you just point your, your you know, turn your stance that way and you'd hit the ball into Jesse Lasky's house? Now, Jesse Lasky was a, was a producer of the day, but he was also the former brother-in-law of Samuel Goldwyn, who helped oust Goldwyn from a previous uh, a studio job. So here was a maid who clearly reads Variety telling him to change his stance and hit it into that producer's house who happens to be the hated brother-in-law of Sam Goldman. So that's the kind of hooey that sometimes <laughs> came out of, out of the Goldman uh, uh, pictures. William A. Bear was the uh, student with the publicity chief, and he put out a lot of fun stuff. Some of it actually seemed like hooey, but was actually, it turned out to be true. Yeah, listen, you've always got to find a way. We know that when it comes to whatever it is. And thankfully, your book is far from who we check out. Pie of the Yankees by Richard Sandemir. You cover sports media for a bit, and I really appreciate the fact you uh, 
I avoided any of, any of your wrath. There was no uh, scalpels taken in the direction of Adnan Burke. No, 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 no and, and, and no reason to take vengeance on me. <laughs> and now, of course, <laughs> you're still writing for The Times, one of the Obit writers there. By the way, I love the film Obit, so I have such respect for uh, all Obit writers, particularly with The New York Times, and best of luck with the book. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks, Adnan. Take care. A Scorsese story. So thanks to all those who said to me, hey, you've got to watch uh, American Boy. It's available on YouTube. Here it is. Here's the link. So I could not wait 48 minutes. And let's just say it was 30 years in the making, but it wasn't exactly a passion project like Gangs of New York or Silence. The best thing about American Boy, which is about Stephen Prince, he's the guy in Taxi Driver who is selling the guns to Travis Bickle. He's saying, you want some of this one? How about some drugs? You want to do this one? Do this one? Do that? And that's who this guy was in real life. So he's a friend of Martin Scorsese's because Marty at that time was dabbling a little bit in that kind of stuff. So he said, let's make a documentary about it. And the funniest thing about American Boy is the second or third scene is Stephen Prince and Marty in a hot tub. Picture Scorsese, 1978, long hair, beard, hot tub. Him <laughs> and Stephen Prince just hanging out. Uh, but the film, of course, lacks the uh, visual style and flair of the best of his films. It is literally just Stephen Prince just telling stories for 48 minutes. Yeah, this is what it was like when I did drugs. This is what it was like when I was running guns. This is when I almost died from heroin. And here's the one thing, as movie lovers and cinephiles, you should all know, and this is why it's important. What's one of the best scenes from Pulp Fiction? Stabs her in the heart. Where did Quentin Tarantino get that from? After he saw the Martin Scorsese documentary, American Boy. Because Stephen Prince tells that story in detail. So it's funny now, retroactively, you're watching it. Like, oh, my God, that's from Pulp Fiction. I'm like, well, yeah, that's where Quentin got it from. And he tells the story, which is pretty much true to form that you see in the movie, when you got Eric Stoltz saying, yeah, just, 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 just dab her in the heart, jab her in the heart, just like that, to bring Uma Thurman back to life. He tells the story of being out with this girl, and then she OD'd, and then he had some guy who said, yep, you've got to send this jolt of adrenaline, but a red dot right in that area. Jab it down with abandon, and that's the only way that you can bring her back to life. So whether or not that's true, Stephen Prince's story served as inspiration for Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. That's the best reason to watch American Boy, which is available, as I found out, on YouTube. A couple other thoughts here. A couple quotes that I just wanted to share from Mamet as well. You know the best thing you can say to someone who wants to go into show business? You know what it is? Don't do it. You know why? Because if they listen, they don't belong in show business. And here's one more, and I hope that this ends on an optimistic note. I wish is a proclamation of something you're not going to do. So rather than I wish, if there's something you want, say I will or I intend to or I'm going to and do it. What's the worst thing that's going to happen to you? You're going to fail. So what? Next time on Cinephile, reviews of Spider-Man, and I cannot wait for Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. We'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.